Okay. Hello, everybody. Welcome to week two of the Lamb of God, seeing Jesus through Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Yes, for this week, we are going over Exodus chapters one through four. So for these 10 weeks, we're just doing a high-level overview of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and we want to provide a reading guide to help people appreciate and really enter into uh, the text while they read. Our goal is to help you and help help us. Our goal is for us to delight in the Word. Mm-hmm. And so we're going to try and help us um, have some tools and resources to delight. So we're starting the Exodus story. Now, the Exodus story... Um, what images or what captures your, what images do you think about when you think of Moses and the Exodus story? <laughs> so like referenced in our last season, when we were going through Noah's Ark story, my mind is just flooded with felt board images. <laughs> so um, if I were felt and we're going old school. Um, so if I were to pull way back from childhood, I would say felt board. I mean, there's all kinds of like Hollywood movies. So we've got like the Prince of Egypt. Oh, yes. Do you think of that? Or there's the old school Charleston Heston. There's the, no, no resonance. No. <laughs> no. Yep. Yep. I've and seen then, neither. I have not. And then I've there is. I've not the, seen Prince of Egypt. Have you? Of course I have seen that. I don't know. You could, Confession uh, of oh. a pastor's wife. I have not seen Prince of Egypt. Oh, wow. I don't think so. Yeah. And then there's the Christian Bale, like, of Gods and Kings that I think we rented and both fell asleep during. <laughs> so the advantage with that is it hasn't, it. It hasn't <laughs> like, shaped the way we think about Exodus. <laughs> but there's a lot of things that... All right, so this time... Um, yeah, so this time reading through it, though... Um, so the women studied this last year, but I was just so struck by... The midwives. So when Hmm. they, um, there's just this one little sentence that how God blesses the midwives with families because Mm -hmm. of their obedience. Mm -hmm. That just has gripped me this time around. I was sharing with the ladies um, last week about just how it speaks to the tenderness of our God, just the the curse that must have been on the barren women. So it was the plight of the barren women of that society to be the midwives um, that delivered the Hebrew babies and just their barrenness was ever before them with their occupation. And I, I can only imagine the the sadness that would overwhelm them at times and just God's continual remembrance of his people's suffering and how he sees that. And he remembers their righteous rebellion when they did not obey Pharaoh's decrees to kill the babies and they obey their God and they, they let them live. God remembers that and rewards that obedience by giving them families. And I've just been, my immersion, my emotions have been so stirred by that. Yeah. And they're, they're definitely the key kind of central heroes of chapter one. And some of the kind of divine irony is that Pharaoh, who's the most powerful human being on the planet, probably at this point, he's not even named. One of the key things when you're reading through the Bible is who gets named, why, what mm-hmm. do their names mean, mm-hmm. and you're given their name, and so they're t- tremendous dignity as they're the heroes of chapter one with their mm-hmm. um, righteous rebellion, and then, as you said, and then there's there's really some creative civil disobedience where Pharaoh issues the decree to kill the baby boys, to cast them into the Nile, mm-hmm. and so Moses' parents put him in this little reed ark. It's an ark. Mm. And they, oh, yeah. they cast him onto the Nile. So I mean, technically they obeyed, they obeyed <laughs> the command, but not maybe mm. in the way he intended. 
Yeah, so this this section from 1, especially 1 through 15, is just filled with such emotive imagery and powerful stories. I'm always, I'm moved. I was moved again by Moses and just struck by his fumbling failure and trying to bring about the deliverance in his own strength. He has to, he has to, he fails and then has to hide and has to be broken and humbled with years in the wilderness. And then his total reluctance to go and do what God's called him to do. I love the repeated excuses he makes and then the climax is just my after he's given four or five excuses uh so i love his repeated reluctance and then finally he just said send someone else please you know <laughs> how our god i just love over and over again just even in the first few chapters how over and over again god lifts up the broken he lifts up their heads he lifts up the lowly and blesses them for their obedience yeah that's one of the great themes running through the whole Bible. All right, so if we're going to appreciate Exodus, two things we said last week we need. We need a mental map so we can Mm -hmm. know where we are on the journey, and we need mental model to help us understand the nature of the commands and what's being uh, told to us. And so first thing, mental map. So I think it's really important as we're reading Exodus is to understand the plot. Mm -hmm. It's so easy in life and then... Mm -hmm when you're reading the Bible, to forget the plot, to lose mm-hmm. the plot. The key plot is this is a story about liberation, being set free out of slavery but brought into God's presence. It's out of slavery into worship. So it is about liberation, but it's not just it's not liberation. It's not freedom from all constraints, mm-hmm. roles, responsibilities. It's not just freedom from, it's freedom for is freedom from bondage for worship. And so that movement is so essential in Exodus, and that's so essential in life, because mm-hmm. that's, that's the, the core reason for our being. All right, so as we're reading through the story, we'll get to the end of Exodus in Exodus 40, and you'll have the fiery glory of God will fill the tabernacle at the end of the book. And in one sense, Genesis 1 through Exodus 40 are telling a complete narrative. It's a continuous story. It's a story about being exiled, expelled from God's presence in Eden, and then finally being brought back into that presence through the tabernacle. Mm -hmm. It's a story of paradise lost and then paradise regained. So we'll see the tabernacles filled with all type of Edenic imagery, imagery to evoke Eden, because that's that's the point. We're being brought back into God's God's presence. Mm-hmm. Now, two things that will really help us as we're reading through, and maybe a great little reading uh, strategy would be take a marker, highlighter, and mark this uh, every time you see it. But there's two key play on words that are going to be essential to understanding the keep understanding the plot. And so the first one is the play on the word avad. Avad is the Hebrew word for either service or worship. It can mean service and it can mean worship. So when I say service, what comes to your mind? What do you think of? A waitress. (laughs) A waitress. Uh Uh-huh. Well, it just, that's the first thing that pops in. Uh Uh-huh. 
But not, not biblical. <laughs> well, I mean, that's part of being, yes, being, actually, that's part of what service is. But yeah, I mean, service, I think of Chick-fil-A, you know, how may I serve you? It's my pleasure to serve you. But I mean, we are primarily in a service economy. So even, you know, the majority of the jobs in the American economy are in the service industry. Um, that's what Adam was created in Genesis 2.15. He was created to serve in the garden, and then he gets expelled, but he still has to serve. And part of, you know, Exodus is going to help us understand what that service means and then how it relates to worship. But I think it's it's important to hold those two things together. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're right, we even have, we call it a worship service. Mm-hmm. So worship is our act of service uh, to the Lord. Mm-hmm. And so kind of figure out all right, what, what does that mean. And actually you can really get a sense of the, this play on words in uh, chapter 1, verse 13. So read for us chapter 1, verse 13 through 14. And as you're reading, I want you to try and key in on the words because the actual word, avad, service, uh, worship, is used seven times, seven times in this verse. Okay. So Exodus 1, 13 through 15. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Okay, so now I'm going to fill in with all the words avad. So did you notice how they translate it? They, the primary word they use there is work. Once you kind of feel the sense, all right, work. Mm-hmm. But let's, let's, let's put in serve. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel serve with service and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and in brick, and all kinds of service in the fields. All their service, they ruthlessly made them serve as servants. So just hearing that, what what strikes you about hearing that? It makes service sound really negative. Mm-hmm. You feel the weight, the harshness. Mm-hmm. Now let's actually insert worship. See how it sounds with worship. Mm. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel worship with worship and made their lives bitter with hard worship, in mortar and brick, and in all kinds of worship in the field. In all their worshiping, they ruthlessly made them worship as worshipers. Mm-hmm. Isn't that interesting? That gives another kind of angle on it. But mm-hmm. that that twin dynamic of service and worship, you, you were made to worship, and you were made for worship, and you were made to serve, you were made for service, and you will be serving something, mm-hmm. you will be worshiping something. And so that's that's one of the key uh, themes. The next kind of play on words that's real important is the word mishkan, building, building. Mm-hmm. And are they, in chapter one, they're going to be building the storehouses for Pharaoh, and then by the end, they're going to be building the tabernacle for the Lord. So the center of the plot is who is who will Israel serve, and what will that service be like? Mm-hmm. Will it be slavery to Pharaoh building his storehouse and his kingdom, or will it be joyful liberation, worshiping and building the Lord's house and his kingdom? Yeah. So what will what will their service be like? Whose house will they build and dwell in? Okay, so those are two key words that help us track with the plot. Okay. Um, so we'll come back to the mental map because another thing we said about the mental model where you have, all right, what's the Lord's desire? And then what are the principles he gives us to 
accomplish that desire? And then what are the specific applications for that? So mm-hmm. um, as we're going through chapters 1 through 15, the key desire, the Lord's desire is that he will be known. And then the key desire from, in essence, 16 on is that he will be loved, experienced. So knowing the Lord and then loving him through fellowship. So those are the key two key de- top-level desires. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things as you're reading, you can even mark it every time you see it's called the recognition formula, so that they will know mm-hmm. that I am the Lord. Mm-hmm. Everything from 1 to 15 happens so that Israel and the nations— will know that he is the Lord. What is his name? What is he like? They will know. So that's the the top desire. Mm -hmm. So divine revelation of who he is and then divine presence. So first he will reveal the knowledge of who he is through redemption. And then second, he's going to draw them into his presence through his covenant. And so here's the map. This is a real important map when you're reading through um, Exodus to have kind of this mental map in your mind that there's three stages that shock you that I would say there's three stages. <laughs> Never. So there's three stages. Chapters 1 through 15, they're being redeemed out of Egypt through the waters of judgment. They're being set free, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. So they're coming out of bondage, 1 through 15. Then 15 through 24, they're traveling into and then up, up into the presence of the Lord at Mount Sinai. So they're going out of the world, into the Lord's presence, up to the mountain. And then from 25 to 40, it's about life in God's presence. So it's that threefold movement, out, up, and then with the Lord. And so all of Exodus is a story of redemption, of them being called out of the world into God's presence to dwell, that threefold movement. And then what's so beautiful about Leviticus and Numbers and setting up their tabernacle, because then every single day through the daily worship service, they're going to reenact that redemptive pattern, Mm. that threefold movement of redemption. Mm. And so in one sense, that should be, helpful and easy for us to remember Mm -hmm. because one of our goals this year for our church is to help people both understand and appreciate how we order and structure the, our worship service Mm -hmm. because we order and structure our worship service around that threefold pattern, Mm -hmm. that redemptive pattern of coming, um, being called out of the world into God's presence, lifting up into his presence with praise and then delighting, uh, fellowshipping with him at his table. Mm -hmm. And so that's why we think it's so important every single week to walk through that pattern where you're re-experiencing, uh, you're walking the path of liberation, of exodus. Of yeah, and when I realize that that's the pattern, like the reason for the pattern of our worship service, kind of coming from exodus and then even more so from Leviticus, which we'll get into, it just made going through our worship service so much more meaningful. Yeah, so every week we want to walk the path of redemption. We want to do it every day as, as we, that's the pattern for how you enter into the Lord's presence daily as well. Okay, so Exodus 1 through 4, so that's the map. Well, keep in mind that's our, that's our map. And then the top level, the Lord's desire in this section is that he will be known. Mm-hmm. He will be known. Mm-hmm. All right, so in Exodus, Exodus 1 and 2, you know, this, there's actually a lot of kind of divine irony, not quite the right word, divine mm-hmm. humor, mm-hmm. Um, 
you know, w- one of the things we know is that God works all things for the good for those who are called according to his purposes. Mm-hmm. And that God even intends these, because Exodus 1 and 2 is going to paint one of the darkest, most difficult times in Israel's history. They're in terrible bondage. And yet, there's this remarkable picture of God working behind the scenes to bring about his purposes. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by kind of the divine irony is the utter futility and frustration that this Pharaoh must have felt because, <laughs> I mean, it's almost like trying to clean up the house with multiple toddlers. Do you know anything about that <laughs> feeling of futility where every one thing you do, they're, my life. <laughs> they're going behind you and destroying it uh-huh. and doing the opposite. Uh-huh. And here, every single thing that Pharaoh does to try and destroy God's people, not only does it not destroy them, it lays the groundwork for their expansion and then eventually flourishing. his uh, their flourishing, his <laughs> destruction. Uh-huh. So he tries to squash them uh, by having the midwives destroy the babies. Not only does that happen, they grow. Mm-hmm. He tries to destroy Moses, and not only does uh, he not destroy Moses, he actually sets in motion the things that are going to make Moses into the deliverer that's going to redeem the people. Mm-hmm. So everything he tries... He and the drama is set in chapter one, where he's intention he's intentionally trying to um, subvert the Lord's pro- the Lord has promised to give the people land to to bless them uh, to numbers. So he he intentionally is trying to subvert the will of the Lord, and he knows this promise. I don't know. I don't know if he knows it or not. It doesn't matter. Okay. He's trying to. So even more so, like if he were to know it. That would almost make the his demise that much more sweet. <laughs> I don't know. Uh. Yep. Right, so chapter 1 and 2 is filled with all this divine irony. And then irony of even Moses trying to bring about the liberation and redemption in his own strength, and he fails. It goes badly for him. Mm-hmm. So in some sense, Pharaoh is not the only character who fails in chapters 1 and 2. Okay, so Ben, in the women's Bible study this week, we had some words come up that mm. perplexed some of us, mm. or really mm-hmm. more like intrigued, I mm-hmm. guess. Um, and we wanted some further teaching on them so that we can be enlight- enlightened to the original words. Mm. Um, okay, so the four verbs of God's response to his people, uh-huh. um, they are at the end of chapter two. Mm-hmm. And it talks about how God heard his people mm-hmm. He remembered his promise. He saw their suffering, and he knew them. Mm-hmm. So he heard, he remembered, he saw, and he knew. And so the question that um, arose was over the word remembered. And so we were talking about, of course, he hadn't forgotten his promise. So what maybe is the original meaning of the word remembered to kind of shed light on that? Yeah, so right before that, it sets it up by two. They cried out for help. They cried out for rescue to God, and there's that cycle of the four. I mean, you could you could write those four things out. Just always when God heard, He remembered, He saw, He knew, and uh, so that first couplet, He heard and He remembered, are significant because hearing the Shema, hear, O Israel, hearing is so significant because it doesn't just mean. Um, it's like the difference between hearing and listening. Like <laughs> you're you're hearing me, but you're not listening. It's not just you know. So you, you tell your kids to clean the room. You see them; they're still sitting on the couch, and you think, all right, obviously you didn't hear me because <laughs> you haven't moved. And so that hearing is is uh, not just the auditory process of 
sound recognition, <laughs> it's that he is now responding. Mm-hmm. You know, we are people primarily of the ear, people who hear God's voice and then respond. And he's He's a God who hears. He's heard their cry. Now he's responding. And then remembering is the same dynamic. It's not that um, he has placed them out of his mind and that he's forgetful and like, oh, man, where, where are my keys? Where? Oh, ah, look, my people, they're down there. Mm-hmm. It's uh, he has given them a promise, and now he is acting on that promise. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's like if I promise to take you to the beach one day, and then you wake up and you see me packing up the car with whatever we're going to take the beach. You say, he's remembered the promise. Now he's acting to bring it about. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Noah's uh, floating on the ark, and it says, and the Lord remembered Noah, mm-hmm. he hadn't forgotten him. It's just mm-hmm. now it's time to act. To act to, on a promise. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. That's helpful. And then he saw, and then he knew, and knew is the is is a loaded word because mm-hmm. we've seen this before. And it's Adam knew his wife Eve, and mm-hmm. she bore him a child. So I mean, it speaks of intimacy, relational intimacy. Mm-hmm. So, so chapters one and two set up the darkness they're in. And then that transition there, they cried out for help. Now the Lord's acting. He's putting redemption. Um, the Redeemer is on the move. Mm-hmm. He, he's the kinsman Redeemer who's going to get his firstborn beloved mm-hmm. son. It's really neat because this is almost like a hinge right before yep. the action yep. of this story uh-huh. kind of unfolds. Uh-huh. It's, um, and it's, it's, just, it's really kind of cool that that means action because the people knew the promise. The promise is threefold, in essence, where he promises um, Canaan, the promised land. They know that after 400 years of slavery, they're going to be delivered and taken to this promised land to worship. And so um, it's kind of exciting. They're kind of, he heard, he remembered, he saw, he knew. So he's, he's starting to act upon this promise. Like this 400 years of slavery is ending, and it's time to act. It's time to get him out. Yeah, and then you move right into chapter 3, where this incredible, so, you know, probably the mo- one of the most famous scenes in the whole Bible, the Moses encounters the angel of the Lord. That's interesting. Um, he's He encounters the angel of the Lord at Horeb, mm-hmm. which is the mountain of God. Mm-hmm. So Horeb, that becomes the same word as Sinai. Mm-hmm. It's at the mountain. And so remember, we encounter the Lord on the mountain. If you want to encounter the Lord, you have to ascend the mountain. And he has his mountain. And it's fascinating that the angel of the Lord there appears to Moses. So this is a, as we read, you're like, hmm, this is an interesting character. We've seen the angel of the Lord was with the Lord when he came to Abraham to go to Sodom. Now he's the one in the burning bush speaking to Moses, but it says the Lord spoke to Moses, but it's the angel of the Lord. And then you have the angel of the Lord again making an appearance when Joshua is about to enter into the promised land and he encounters the angel of the Lord, and he asked them, are you for us or against us? And the angel said, no, wrong question. <laughs> the question is, are you, the question is not, am I on your side? The question is, are you on my side? And so it's interesting, who is this angel mm-hmm. of the Lord? I have strong opinion, or not strong. I have an opinion about <laughs> that, but we'll, we'll, we'll go on. I think it is important. Um, so three is, so chapter three is this, this encounter of Moses at the burning bush. My favorite part of this is Moses' repeated objection to the Lord. I mean, first he's told you have to take off your shoes. You're on holy ground. The, the mountain is holy, and there's a process of you get in. You're in the danger zone. And then he starts to argue with God. Mm-hmm. And so, like, ch- chapter 3, verse 11, his first objection, uh, 
when God says that he's going to send him, he says, well, who am I that I should go? And I love the Lord's promise because he says, basically, it doesn't matter who you are. I'm sending you. Mm-hmm. So it does, and that I will be with you. Yeah, I will be, it doesn't matter who you are. Right. I'm with you. And then he says, all right, what is your name that I'll tell the people who sent me? Then he tells him his name. I am who I am. I'm the God of your father, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it's so interesting. That's the key. Who is the Lord? What is his name? It, it, the whole goal of the six is that he will be known. And then his next objection in chapter four is, how will the people believe that you have sent me? So then God gives them the signs. You'll show them these signs, uh, staff to serpent, water to blood, and these signs are to authenticate the word. Hmm. And that's the way the signs always work. That's the way all the signs always work. They authenticate the word. That's how Jesus' signs and miracles work. They, they brought restoration that authenticated the word. That's how our signs work right now. Our two primary signs are baptism and Lord's Supper. The way they work is they're supplements that authenticate the word. And then you have... In in four ten, he says, "Well, I'm not eloquent. I'm slow of speech and slow of tongue. I have uncircumcised lips. That means they're 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 they're, they're well, can't talk. I think he's a stutterer. He couldn't <laughs> he couldn't speak. And then so, what does the Lord say? Who is it that made man's mouth? Yeah. Who made this? Mm-hmm. And then finally, my favorite in four thirteen, he just says, "Can you please send someone else? <laughs> like, okay, you're not. I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. You're you're not hearing me. I'm I'm." I'm you're not picking up all the hints I'm laying down. <laughs> I don't want to do this. <laughs> and then the Lord Lord gets angry at him. His anger burns, and he says, all right, well, what about Aaron? I'll give you Aaron. So, And even in the midst of his anger, though, there's tremendous mercy from the Lord. Yeah, but, it's, uh, it's, but it's so gracious of him. He's, like, he sees Moses' fear and is like, okay, I'll send Aaron. You're still going to do it, but I'll uh, send Aaron. Yeah. You're not going alone. Mm-hmm. I'm going to send another. And it's so interesting. Aaron's the older brother. So here we have that reversal of the older will serve the younger. Mm. And um, and so he How the younger is being lifted up. Mm-hmm. And then you'll see there's all types of incredible echoes. We're going through Matthew in uh, Sunday morning and mm-hmm. preaching through Matthew. And Matthew 1 and 2 is just dripping with echoes to the Exodus, mm-hmm. especially here. Um, so we'll see all types of, you know, Jesus, just like Moses is going to be born under the dominion of a tyrant, but then part of, and then Jesus, like Moses is going to be, um, have to be miraculously saved as a baby. But then the, the irony is that the wicked Pharaoh is no longer in Egypt. He's in Israel and his name's not Pharaoh, it's Herod. And then now it's no longer that they have to flee Egypt to Israel for safety. They're now fleeing Israel, going back to Egypt. So there's, mm-hmm. yeah, but there's all types of mm. echoes. But as we finish here, I think, I think one of the most important things to keep in mind is, is the plot, the big picture, the story arc, that this is a story of freedom from bondage, mm-hmm. but it's a story of freedom for worship being drawn into worship. Mm-hmm. It's not. And this is just popping into my head. So I'll, I'm going to try and make sense of it as I say it, as I'm thinking it. But it's almost like God gives Moses the best of both worlds of his upbringing or like the past 80 years of his life up until this point. So the first 40 years, Moses has been an Egyptian royalty. So the highest you know place that you can have 
And then the next 40 years he spends as a shepherd, a lowly shepherd, one of the lowest occupations you can hold in that time. So he goes from the spectrum of royalty down to a shepherd, Egyptian to Hebrew. But then God lifts him up in his fear, even though he's fearful, he's been humbled those past 40 years by being a shepherd, not even of his own sheep. It's his father-in-law's sheep. He doesn't even own his sheep that he's being a shepherd of. And so he's being humbled and broken of just probably just so many things that the Lord knows will be inhibitors for him to lead his people. And yet, like when even in Moses's fear of God saying, you're going to lead my people, you're going to lead my people, you are going to do this. And even Moses, I don't want to do it. He gets the best of both worlds. He gets to be a leader. He gets to be a Hebrew with his own people that he was born into. So he finally gets to be with his people even though they somewhat kind of reject him because he came from royalty from Egypt and all of that. But he, he still gets to be this leader. He gets to be lifted up. Um, yeah, it's an amazing thing. And it's a humbling and a somewhat scary thing because if the Lord's going to use you, he has to break you. And Moses gets the most incredible education in the house of Pharaoh. Mm-hmm. And then he gets a whole different type of education in the wilderness as a mm-hmm. shepherd. And both are necessary. Mm-hmm. So good stuff. We're well on our way. Yep. Thanks for listening, guys. All right. Until next time. Have a great week. Well, okay. hello. We're, oh. Well, we're live. Oh, we're, <laughs> we're jumping in oh, on top. Interrupting. Of each other. Oh, this is not a good way to start. <laughs> what a way to start. Okay. Try again.